Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. This is John Vibes. I'm joined today by Matt Savoy and our special guest, Scott Horton. Before we get started, just like to remind everybody to rate, review, subscribe over on iTunes, YouTube, wherever you can. It really helps us out with all the censorship we've been facing. So uh, I'll just get right into our guest. Scott Horton is the editorial director of Antiwar.com. It's also with the... Uh, I believe the founder of the Libertarian Institute and author of Fool's Errand, one of the definitive books on the Afghanistan war. And if you want to know what is going on, you know, with U- U.S. foreign policy over there, that's one of the best books to read. So how are you doing today, Scott? Is there anything I missed there that you want to uh, plug before we get into it? Um. Oh, well, I host uh, the Scott Horton Show. I've got almost 5,000 interviews now going back to 2003. And that's uh, also anti-war radio on the radio, um, 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles on Sunday mornings. Um, But my full interview archive is at scotthorton.org. So antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, libertarianinstitute.org, and foolserrand.us for the book. For sure. And I had the pleasure of being one of those uh, guests on that show last week. It was really cool. It was really fun. Yeah, and you know what? Seriously, I really appreciate you coming on, too. It's such an important topic, and so few people uh, understand it the way you do, Matt. So um, I really appreciate you know having access to you to drive that point home. Awesome, man. It was a great conversation, dude. You got some fire in you, man. I love it, dude. <laughs> it's, it's great. Even I after told all my guy of- to edit most of that out. I don't know if he did or not. <laughs> I just saw it put up on the uh, the site, and I, I guess it was a, it was a, it was like forty eight minutes long. So. I guess most of it was in there, so it's good. Yeah, I get a little carried away sometimes, but uh, oh man, we need we need that fire, and I think that's what we're going to talk about today how how we're uh, losing that fire. And um, but first, I guess we want to you know we need to talk about the uh, giant elephant in the room, and that is the arrest of Julian Assange. So uh, this morning, you know, a, a dozen men in black suits and cops and. They they raided the Ecuadorian embassy in London and kidnapped Julian Assange. And um, this what this means for journalism and what this means for the like the just truth in general is uh, it's it's a pretty ominous precedent that was set today with with his arrest. And uh, first off, what do you how do you feel about that, uh, Scott? Well, I totally agree with you. I mean, it's not just that. I personally favor Assange and all of his great work, and I hate partisanship, so I love his Manning leaks of the Bush and Obama era, and I love all of his leaks against Hillary Clinton in uh, 2016, and I'm really for him tearing down everyone with power in a completely nonpartisan fashion. Uh, That's the perspective that I look at it from, so I guess the biggest shame in the whole story is the way people are such flipper floppers and hypocrites and you know, first of all, the people who, you know, wanted to execute Assange and prosecute him and accuse him of treason back then, mostly the right, 
because even though his leak, you know, the Manning leak call came out in 2010, it was mostly about the Bush years, the Iraq and Afghan war logs and the State Department cables. It included, you know, the first, you know, year and a half or so of Obama. But mostly it was Bush that took the hit. So right wingers were, you know, leading the uh, charge against him. And the liberals were saying that, no, you know, Assange and, and for that matter, the progressives and the leftists and of course, the libertarians were saying, no way, you know, Manning and Assange are heroes and we have the right to this information. And um, this is the entire purpose of journalism in the world is to bring information like this to the public. Um, now it's and the by opposite. the way, you know, I don't know if people know this, but what the story of how Manning got busted was that Manning trusted a rat named Adrian Lamo, who, uh, you know, was befriended him in a chat room kind of a thing and immediately turned him over to the FBI. And the FBI hired Lamo as an informant to try to get Manning to say bad, horrible things like, um, for example, Lamo said, you know, you could make a lot of money selling this information to the Russians or the Chinese. And Manning said, what in the hell are you talking about, man? No, dude, this is all about the truth because horrible, bad things are going on. And if the people of America and the people of the world have the truth, then they can use democracy to make reforms and help to fix things the way that they're supposed to be, which is just absolutely straight out of Thomas Jefferson's explanation for the value of the First Amendment in the first place, right? Like this is exactly that he's Manning when when she said that uh, was essentially singing the song of every single American citizen, uh, you know, worth that name. This is what we all believe in. Of course, uh, we have to know the truth so that we ultimately, supposedly, the sovereign people of the society can decide who gets to be our security force or who doesn't, um, rather than us being the subjects and them being the masters and using secrecy the way they do as a weapon against us to control us all. Right. And, and that's, so, that's what Julian Assange stood for, too. You know, he, he was unpartisan. I like how you said that. I want to go back to how uh, how Julian Assange is, is is not partisan at all. So at some points the right hates him, some points the left hates him. And currently, right. you know, you mentioned how when he when with the release of collateral murder and everything and he portrayed the war in a negative light, the right wanted to execute him and now it's the opposite. You know, now after he exposed Hillary Clinton and the, the DNC leaks in 2016, the left hates him because he, they think that he was working with Russians and trying to get uh, to get Donald Trump elected. And right. just this morning, um, occupied Democrats, uh, their Facebook page, they shared the article of Julian Assange, the New York Times article of Assange being um, arrested in the embassy. And they put it with the caption, uh, Another one of Trump's co-conspirators bites the dust. They're celebrating that their partisan brains are so brainwashed and dead that they're celebrating the arrest of a journalist whose only crime was speaking truth to power. And he, yeah. and he did so in, with, without any, any kind of partisan regard. And he was a hero. And these people are, are cheering on his, you know, his, his imprisonment and the, the silencing of, the, of truth. This it's just, it's so and, you know, fucking scary, man. That these people are that is. stupid. And the lie is just wrapped up in these stupid slogans. You know, it's just like back in O two, where you know, are we gonna wait for Saddam to attack us? Or are we gonna attack him first, man? And then you're, but you're only allowed to argue within that framework, right? Um, and you're just supposed to buy that. In this case, 
well, everybody concedes, even Donald Trump admits that everybody knows that the Russians attacked us. They attacked us. They attacked us. Um, they they were waging a campaign to get Trump elected, to destabilize our democracy, to undermine faith in our fellow Americans and the, and all of this. But it's all just what? All of that is a bunch of, you know, it's highfalutin just- rhetoric and advertising for what core set of facts that the Russians may have leaked Hillary Clinton's very real emails mostly to her subordinates at the State Department, and they gave them to WikiLeaks and that WikiLeaks published them where we could get to them. That's it. That's the attack that's been compared repeatedly to the September 11th attack, to Pearl Harbor, and even to Kristallnacht. I mean, imagine where your head has to be that this is like that time that Hitler sicked the SA on innocent Jewish shopkeepers. Like, wh- huh? He did what now? If you assume for the sake of argument that the Russians leaked this stuff, then that's worth what? Like possibly a one-shoulder shrug and an ironic cluck of a tongue that ain't that funny that the Russians are the ones bringing us this true information that every single one of us have a right to. And that, ooh, look, is very interesting and revealing. Yeah, it's ironic at best. the fact that, hey, this leak – for some reason, is just goes without saying, amounts to an attack on America. But what if Russia leaked all that stuff because they thought it made Hillary Clinton look great? Because they thought that if only the American people had the chance to see what a wonderful Secretary of State she was, that we'd make her the president. Because she's such a great, reasonable person that they can look forward to a new reset and partnership with in the future. Why does it go without saying that to show us her true emails is to torch her? Because she's a horrible, terrible person and was a horrible, terrible secretary of state, and everybody knows that. And the unsaid premise here is that that kind of thing is supposed to be kept under wraps as long as possible, at least till after the election, guys. A.K.A. I don't have the right to know these things, so please don't tell me them. Exactly. And the the censorship that was ushered in after this 2016 leaks that you know supposedly handed Donald Trump the election is uh, it's been unprecedented you know we're seeing it left and right and you know i mean conservatives claim they're the victim the left sometimes claims they're they're the victim and but i mean we're seeing it it's it's being again bipartisanly uh, ushered in and all voices that are just merely anti-establishment no matter if you're left or right that if if you're anti-establishment like Julian Assange is then you're the enemy now and yep. and that's why you know that's why I believe that uh, Assange was arrested today and and he's going to be uh, you know extradited to the U.S. like immediately after that's the the Justice Department you know they put out their their statement noting that he had like colluded in a conspiracy with with uh, Chelsea Manning and uh, about like in some kind of hacking conspiracy or something like that it's some made up trumped up bullshit and then. An hour after he was arrested out of the embassy, then we we see that the uh, judge in London charged him with jumping bail or skipping bail from 2011 out of Sweden. And this is in spite of the fact that uh, all those charges that were brought against him in Sweden were all dropped because they were found out to be false. Mm-hmm. So they're, now they're, they're reinstating they're them, by the way. What was that? Not because there's anything to them, but just because it makes it 
less comfortable for you to defend him since he's accused of, you know, sexual improprieties. It's just a smear. Yes. And uh, also, I want to bring up, it was, uh, it was, this is how badass Assange is. You know, he was, um, as they were photographing me in that, in that prison van that they had him in, you know, he's like, he's giving thumbs up and winking. Like this, this dude is, is just hell bent on fighting the establishment. And as he's being put in the van, he's saying, you know, we must resist UK resist, you know, that, mm-hmm. that is just so amazing. It just speaks to his character. You know, this guy could be, this guy could be shipped off to a fucking black site tonight and we might never hear from him again. And, yeah. and he's, he's smiling and fighting. And he was also holding a book. I don't know if, if uh, how big of a Gore Vidal uh, fan you are, uh, Scott, but um, I, I, I've, delved into his revisionist history and so julian assange when he was handcuffed somehow he managed to grab uh one of gord vidal's uh books and he was showing it you know like as best as he could as he was being dragged out of the embassy that's interesting do you know which book it was yeah it was uh, a history of the national security state it's what he did with oh, okay. the, the real news network um editor um, they it's an it's an older book but uh, i mean it's it's super relevant and it went into uh, you know, on how the how the establishment, how the rise of the military industrial complex is, and the propagandistic techniques used against Americans to get them to support these wars and and everything like that. And it's a it's an amazing uh, book, and I, I I actually wrote an article about it today and and pulled some quotes out of it. And uh, they're they're I mean they're chilling. You know, he says yeah. I I just want to read this quick quote from that book that uh, that Assange um, was carrying when he was getting arrested. It says, it's, this, is, this is Gordon Vidal. It's, uh, I think everybody should take a sober look at the world about us. Remember that practically everything that you're told about other countries is untrue. What we're told about ourselves and our great strength and how much we are loved, forget it. Our strength is there, but it's the kind of strength that blows off your hand while you hold up the grenade. It's a suicidal strength as well as a murderous one. And uh, so that's what that book was about. And I mean, this is what Julian Assange chose to carry out. As he's being filmed, being arrested, and I mean that—that's just an—it's—it's it's an icon. It's a—it's an amazing meme that 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 happened. Like that, this dude thought to carry the book out and and say all these things as he's being arrested. It's a—it's—it's uh, it's inspiring, and um, and it just shows you know what kind of a stand-up man Julian Assange actually is. Yeah, I totally agree with that, man. Uh, I think that he really is the quintessential journalist, and you know. And this goes really to the charges here. In the Obama years, and I know you guys know, Obama mercilessly prosecuted journalists and especially leakers um, uh, under the Espionage Act. And well, he didn't prosecute journalists under the Espionage Act, but for example, he held, uh, you know, had James Risen um, ended up being held in uh, contempt for refusing to testify in the prosecution of Jeffrey Sterling, uh, who was supposedly a CIA leaker, although they never really proved that at all, uh, but good enough for the jury they did. But anyway, um, you know, Obama used the Espionage Act against leakers more than all other previous presidents combined, and yet they dropped the case against Assange. And there were reports back then that there was a secretly impaneled grand jury somewhere, and they weren't sure if there were indictments or not, but... Rumors say it's been impaneled or whatever. And then the Washington Post published a story about how, nope, they decided to pack it up and close it down because of the New York Times test. And they said to themselves, 
is there a case that we can make against Julian Assange in order to try to twist things to portray him as something other than a journalist, but a co-conspirator in an espionage case with Manning, his source? Is there a way that we can do that, that the New York Times wouldn't also be exactly as guilty if we only changed the names? And The Guardian as well. Right, and The Guardian yeah. as well. And so they passed the story around, and they said, there's no, this is a distinction without a difference here at all. You know, um, Joe Laurie, I was in a, a chat room, a chat discussion thing with Kim.com and Joe Laurie and some others earlier, and talking about how, you know, the, the Post and the Times and these, you know, uh, uh, Washington, D.C. corridor type journalists want to say that Assange, he's not a real journalist, not like they are. Well, according to what? According to their emotions only, right? There's no distinction in law whatsoever between publishing a document versus publishing some paragraphs where you quote a document and then maybe also publish that document, which is the business the New York Times is in. Um, there'd be a small distinction, but one that just goes to show that it's a distinction without a difference in the UK, where no, according to the Official Secrets Act, you can't republish an entire document, but you can only publish portions of it and with parts of it obscured weirdly or something so that it's not perfect. But it just goes to show, again, these are tiny little made-up arbitrary distinctions that exist in the minds only of some prosecutor or some judge or some Atlantic writer who wants to pretend that what they do is different in kind from what Julian Assange does. And it's just not true. And you can just, the thought experiment is like this. What if Assange wrote a one paragraph introduction to every document? Is he a journalist then? What right. He wrote a one word introduction to each document. Is then that good enough or not? It's totally arbitrary. It doesn't mean anything. He is a leak E, not a leaker. He is a publisher, a journalist, not someone guilty of espionage. And there the is way, one difference between uh, Julian Assange and what the New York Times does out, outside of that is the fact that WikiLeaks has never had to issue an, a retraction. They've never been incorrect, <laughs> yeah. you know, well, and, and we too. have New York Times putting out retractions left and right because of the information that they run is false. It right. starts wars and, you know, led to, you know, WMDs, everything, everything else like this, the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Right. The New York Times has been complicit in selling war to the American people for decades and, and, their, their their falsehoods have killed or have led to the deaths of millions, and this is not mm -hmm. the case with Julian Assange at all, although the government right. would have you believe. Now, that the, the comparison here, though, just to be specific, would be to a real scoop, right? Not when the Obama government, for example, hands them a story on a silver platter, but go back to, say, the NSA spying story that they did sit on it for a year, but they did finally publish. Um, or look at, say, James Risen's stories about how there are no weapons of mass destruction or about how uh, Osa uh, Saddam Hussein sent Naji Sabri to meet with Richard Pearl in London and surrender before the war began and how Pearl told him, tell Saddam we'll see him in Baghdad and we refuse to accept your complete and total capitulation. And that's the kind of story that's based on classified documents, based on classified sources – Huge scoop, the kind of thing that should have got Bush, Cheney, Pearl, and the entire gang thrown in prison immediately when that came out. But never mind that. But that was the import of it, and that was the kind of thing that the New York Times is, from our point of view, supposed to be doing, right, is scoops like that. 
And that's the kind of thing where under this precedent, if they can do this to Assange and say that he somehow cooperated or conspired with Manning in getting this leak, then they can use that exact same precedent against James Risen or any other especially national security beat, but maybe any other reporter who publishes a secret that they're not supposed to know. Right. By the way, you guys may know this, but um, you know the Espionage Act says anyone who disseminates classified information, it does not make an exclusion for journalists there. It doesn't make an exclusion for you retweeting it even, as uh, Joe Loria pointed out in that previous interview. Um, however... Journalists have never been prosecuted under the Espionage Act for publishing. The leak ease have not, but that's just tradition. And in fact, when Daniel Ellsberg was leaking the Pentagon Papers and the New York Times was publishing them, the Supreme Court struck down prior restraint and said that Richard Nixon could not prevent the New York Times from publishing the documents. But they specifically left open the possibility that he could prosecute them for publishing the documents. That's the law in America. It's not an official secrets act, but it is in the Espionage Act in that way. And, um, you know, of course, Nixon never got the chance really uh, to carry that out. And it's never been tested by the Supreme Court. Um, But, you know, I think it's possible that the Supreme Court would uphold that and say, you know, a classified information is different. They can draw whatever distinction they I, want. So now it's I when think, it's really up to not not only the alternative media like us who've been good on this all along, um, but for the mainstream media, you know, professional reporters whose opinions matter, for them, the New York Times editorial page for the first example, for them to turn around and start backing Assange on this before it's too late for their sorry asses too. You know, this is their neck in a noose just as well as his yeah i mean i don't know if they really realize that though and i think that they see us as a different totally different breed like uh even all throughout history journalists who were anti-establishment were treated like they weren't journalists like seymour hirsch right uh you know he he got treated like he was just some hippie when he was a hardcore uh you know one of the realest in the game and uh, I think that we have that same kind of attitude today where, like, if you're not establishment, you're not a journalist. And uh, I remember, like you said, it's just vague distinctions. A couple of years ago, I remember Feinstein saying that if you don't collect a paycheck, you're not a journalist. Or it's like if you don't collect a certain type of paycheck, you're not a journalist. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's right. It's totally made up. And by the way, that's not the law, right? I mean, I'm not exactly certain the names of the cases and what have you, but the courts have ruled before that journalism is done or a journalist is anyone who does journalism or, you know, even if you just started one second ago, you go, oh, my God, I just found something out. I think I might just report this to someone. You're a journalist now. Yeah, that's it. There's no there's this is completely made up. That somehow you have to cash a check and it has to be from, what, some company on some list provided by the Democrats in the Senate? Is that it? Come on. Right. The First Amendment doesn't say NBC, ABC, CBS, you know, Fox, SNBC, CNN. It doesn't say anything. of just think of it. You could be, you know, and like think of some old movie or something, right? You could have a, a young teenager who's bumming around at the courthouse who overhears something important and decides – 
I'm going to go get a job at the newspaper and develop this story right now. Right. So he now has possession of this secret. Who gets to say whether he's a journalist or whether he's not a journalist yet or something? He's on his way. If his intent is to publish what he knows, then he's a journalist. Or, in fact, not even. If his intent is to keep what he knows on background in case he wants to report something else later, that's good enough, too. You see how easy this is? The point is it, it, it's, it's black and white. Anyone who claims to be a journalist is one, essentially, because there's no way anyone else can quantify it away from you, right? Yeah, exactly. But we see, I mean, that we this continues to happen, and now we're seeing, like, the inevitable culmination of, of all these different tactics to go into to redefine journalism like that. And one of the, one of the like, the most horrifying side effects is, is the way that the mainstream media reports on war, or rather, no longer reports on war anymore. War is just now a, a just a a fleeting thought in the minds of Americans. You know, this is a, this is it's been going on for so long now that you know the U.S. can drone bomb a, a fucking hospital in Yemen with or, or help the Saudis drone bomb a hospital in Yemen or a school in Yemen or a school bus in Yemen or uh, you know drop DU in Iraq and and none of, none of this is covered on the media anymore. No one even gives a a rat's ass about that. We run. When we run Yemen articles and show the the corruption for Yemen, or the corruption that the U.S. is supporting, the, the wholesale slaughter of of innocent men, women, and children, they they don't reach anybody. The algorithm has officially wiped that out, and it, the algorithm that was, it's, I believe, is designed to do so. You know, you can't yeah you can't continue to sell war whenever people see war, whenever they see the what really happens in these places, and. You know, we see this with veterans, and we see we veterans get pushed to the wayside. Their PTSD gets, you know, underwritten as 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 just a side effect, and and they can't talk about their stories anymore. And that's what's going on. War is not being anti-war is is gone. There's no more anti-war movement. There was a when Bush first started the Iraq War. You know, there was there were a hundred thousand people in New York. You know, f- fucking protesting and. Damn yeah. near rioting because of this, this these illegal wars. That that hasn't happened in a decade. No one protests yeah, since war then. anymore. And it's, even then, I mean, it was the same thing here in Austin, Texas. There were two huge rallies on February and March fifteenth of two thousand and three, and then they launched the war anyway. Four days later, and then everybody was like, "Well, so much good that did." And then that was it. And then. That was as big as the anti-war movement got. Uh, there was the Camp Casey, um, Cindy Sheehan, and the rally around her in 2005. But then Hurricane Katrina came and wiped all that out of the news. And then, you know, essentially after that, it went to the back burner. Nancy Pelosi and uh, Harry Reid signed on to the war in the spring of 2007 when they had control of the Congress and gave Bush all the money he needed to um, you know, appropriate for the surge and all of that, the escalation of Iraq War II and all that. And then that was it. So they used, you know, that anti-war sentiment to help get the Democrats some power. And then they turned their back on the whole thing. And then very quickly already it was the 2008 race and, you know, Obama taking the stand that he wouldn't have done Iraq. He ran on that and that's what got him elected and, and his – you know, vague promise to get out, which of course he went back in. He did. He did pull troops out, but he did uh, end up putting them back in. Of course, when his Syria policy blew up in his face, there. Um, 
But in any case, um, fucking, I forgot what the hell I was going to say, guys, about the <laughs> partisanship here. It was something here. Well, I mean, it is. It's the it's partisanship that is uh, that's actually creates this this drive, this this ability for Americans to forget war. Because whenever one party's against it, the other party's for it, and, and this has flip flopped, yeah. you know, uh, three times now in the last since since nine eleven. And uh, oh yeah, and that's that's all I was going to say was about how Obama exploited this, right? Because when it came to the Afghan surge. He decided he did the simple math, and this is the American people's fault as much as it is his, right? Because he did the simple math. He said, you know what? If I escalate the war in Afghanistan, that'll shut the Republicans up. He had a promise from McCain and Graham that they would lay off of him if he gave Petraeus at least 30,000 more troops, really 60,000 more troops. Um, and, uh, and then he calculated, and if I do escalate, so that'll shut up the Republicans, but the Democrats won't care. The liberals won't turn on me for doing it. They'll just pretend it never happened, and he was right about that. So he could have fired Petraeus and said, hell no, we're going to end this war too. This thing is, is completely stupid. It can't work, and we all know that, and we're going to end it right now. But instead, he gave in, and ultimately, his bet paid off. And the Democrat voters did not hold him accountable for escalating that war because, what, you prefer Mitt Romney or some kind of thing? And so they just ignored it and completely let it slide. And then, you know, I think it's actually a miracle of miracles, and we're so lucky that this quickly, after George W. Bush, that just one, you know, president later, still two terms later, but just one president later, a Republican got elected on the platform of denouncing Bush and his policy to remake the Middle East. Said that whole thing was stupid. We should have never done that. And that's how he beat Bush's brother and the rest of them. Got that nomination. Did the and exact then taking same the same stand Obama. against Hillary Clinton. She goes, I want a no-fly zone in Syria. And Trump goes, she wants a no-fly zone in Syria. And that was enough to help get him elected for being less worse than her, as hawkish as he is. Um, and so that's really throws a wrench in the whole narrative there because, you know, he was supposed to and, – and he has, you know, of course, solidified support for the things that he is doing. Um, Republicans don't mind if he keeps the war going in Somalia or Yemen that much, I guess. But when he says he wants out of Syria or he says he wants out of Afghanistan, they're rallying to that. You know, over at Breitbart.com, they love that stuff. They're sick and tired of this war. If you ask them now, they never liked George W. Bush. They never believed in that stuff, which may be true after all. There are a hell of a lot of millions of Americans who knew better than to, to go for that stuff. And so now we have – you know, essentially not just a, a partisan kind of crack up, but we have like this partisan nervous breakdown, right? Where um, where people are stuck on all of the wrong sides of these arguments. All these liberals are taking the side of the FBI and the CIA to protect us from the Russian menace and their stooge Donald Trump. And you got all these right wingers at Breitbart saying that, you know, continuing the war is treason and all of this stuff. And um so everybody, of course, continues to give their own side a pass, but the the issues themselves, you know, become very much in flux, and and the positions that people take on those issues change uh, very quickly. So, you know, there's room for optimism in that too. You know what I mean? That you can essentially you can always say, "Hey, all you Obama voters, you voted for him because he was less worse on war. All you Trump voters, you voted for him because he's less worse on war." And this is what the American people want: is less of this. 
And um, it's the, the American people, as you said, the populace, the regular humans, the, the actual people of the country versus the political class and, and the zillionaire class that's in on it with the Pentagon, you know, with the military industrial complex and all of that. It's us versus them. There's the real partisanship. It should be clear enough, right? It should be. Especially after all this time. Unfortunately, the the mainstream media or the establishment media, you know, it's the Praetorian Guard that has to hold up the the wave the flag and keep the support for war. And uh, the only time you can you can see it, it's it's so obvious. Like that, the only time that all the media praises Trump is during acts of war. You know, when he when he uh, launched that, which was a, essentially a war crime, when he when he launched a hundred so tomahawk missiles into Syria. Over the alleged gas attack, and uh, with without declaring an act of war or anything like that, uh, the all all sides of the media, the New York Times came together. They praised Trump for launching these these you know a billion dollars worth of missiles into the into a sovereign nation. And so every time he does talk of an act of war or like like the all options are on the table to go into Venezuela, the mainstream media picks that up and they and they praise Trump on this. You know that's that's their job, and that's why I think that you know there's. That the anti-war push by, or there is no anti-war push by media at all. But it's, it, but the those who, those of us who are anti-war, that's why we're being silenced even further, you know, because we we challenge that narrative and we don't want, uh, you know, we we see that the establishment is is the one that's pushing this, uh, you know, all, all these wars like that, and and even when Trump like tries to do something like the tries to pull out troops you know like you just said he gets lambasted by these people even Fox News you know everybody it's just so obvious anytime that there's an anti-war move or or um anytime anybody in DC like Tulsi Gabbard for example anytime any of these people try to say that they're anti-war or try to be against the war or call out the US war crimes they're a russian agent or, and they're you know they're anti-american and that's what happens right. every single time and it's look it's what got, they're doing to Tulsi Gabbard right yeah dude the algorithm is wiping her off the face of the internet dude she used to be she used to have this golden algorithm cuz she challenged a, a so much so you know she challenged the the establishment but she was like a she was a, a congresswoman, you know. Now she's putting her hat in the race for presidency, and they're like, "Fuck, man, this is a real threat." You know, this yeah. if we have an anti-war veteran fucking coming into the White House, dude. That's gonna that is going to be the death blow to to the military industrial complex. I'm really excited about it, honestly. And and you know, um, I got a couple caveats and everything, but essentially the reason I'm excited about it is because it's not just that she's anti-war. It's that she actually knows who's who over there and understands things in a way that the rest of these people just don't. I mean, they have their narrative they learn from TV. Assad is a really bad guy, and we don't like him or whatever. She actually knows what's going on in a way where she can frustrate any attempt um, that they make to come at her. And on top of that, she's done two tours in Iraq War II, in the Ambar province, fighting against the Sunni-based insurgency in alliance with the bin Ladenites of Zarqawi and al-Qaeda in Iraq at that time. She's currently a major in the National Guard. And so they're going to sit there and they're going to try to trash her. They keep trying to trash her. And they're going to come up real quickly against, hey, man, how come you guys keep trashing this veteran this way? Whatever happened to support the troops and all of this stuff, that's the kind of thing where they're going to end up picking fights with veterans and maybe veterans groups 
of people who don't necessarily support her at all who are going to be calling into CNN talking about you better start showing this woman some respect or else. Because and think about the way that they put all that on us. You and you, you can't oppose the war or else you're disrespecting these troops. But here's not just a troop, but an active duty troop and a member of the House of Representatives and a presidential candidate um, for one of the major parties here. And every time she says something anti-war, she says that it's on behalf of the troops that she's one of and that she wants to save their lives and that they agree with her and that they thank her and that that's why they put her in office so that she would save their lives by sending them home from these places where they shouldn't be in the first place. Now, if you're CNN, you can't do a damn thing up against that. They can try to smear her and they can try to ignore her, but that is only going to last so long. And I got the email last night um, that she got her past the threshold of the number of donors. They made it where you needed 65,000 separate donors to get into the debates. Well, she got them. Yep, I saw and They're going to try to give her the, Rand, uh, the Ron Paul treatment and just ignore her and not ask her questions and this and that. But I think it's inevitable that they're going to set her up with Giuliani moments and that she is going to stomp their asses because they don't know what they're talking about. How come you love Assad so much? Well, how come you love Ayman al-Zawahiri so much? Yep. Assad's over there fighting against al-Qaeda. And Obama had the CIA spend a billion dollars a year on the Timber Sycamore program to back al-Qaeda there. And I say that al-Qaeda is the enemy, not Assad. Al-Qaeda knocked our towers down, not Assad, not Hezbollah, not Iran. So... How come you're on the side of Jabhat al-Nusra suicide bombers and butchers? Just because that's what TV told you to say? You know, get this straight about who's fighting who over there and what's going on. She'll win every time. She can, and she can preface it all with, when I was in Ambar province in 2006, they can't do anything against her. And, um, and then not only that, but like from the social justice, this and that point of view, um, she's a religious minority, an ethnic minority, a woman – and fits right in with just what she's supposed to be, according to what they say is the most important thing in terms of identity politics for them. And then with the whole soldier thing, that actually gives her sort of that centrist credential that they're always so desperate to have for electability purposes that they don't get painted as too Green party e or anything like that, right? So um, I think she's going to be a force to be reckoned with. I should add, she's really bad on the terror war. She's just good on the wars for the terrorists. When Obama is outright back in al-Qaeda in Syria committing the highest treason, him and John Brennan, um, it's pretty easy to see right through that and to see why if you're not just you know an Israeli partisan who's obsessed with Iran and Iran's Shiite allies, but you're just a regular American citizen with no dog in that fight, then it's pretty easy to see who's on whose side and what it all means. And so for her, it was absolutely crazy that America would be siding with the exact Sunni-based insurgency. She just got finished fighting on the other side of the border there um, while the rest of D.C. was going along with this. But at the same time, she likes to say she's a hawk on the wars against al-Qaeda and against ISIS, which can be defined very broadly to mean so – Maybe she wants to end the war against the Houthis in Yemen, but she would keep the war against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula going. And in what form? And there are 100 times more of those guys now than there were before Obama started backing them in 2015. So what's she going to do about them? 
she seems to imply that she's going to go to war against them is what she's going to do. And we've already been drone bombing the hell out of uh, Somalia all of this time since 2006. Is she going to escalate that because Shabab says that they like Zawahiri? Even though they're really not international terrorists that threaten the United States at all. Um, and what about the war in Afghanistan? You got a group of Pashtun tribesmen, from mostly from Pakistan, calling themselves ISIS. Now, is she for getting the hell out of there? Or she says, no, that's part of the anti-war or the anti-terror campaign. So she really needs her feet held to the fire. Obama has lowered the bar really low. You know what I mean? You could be against high treason in Syria and still be really bad on the rest of the war on terrorism. Um, so, um, you know, she still needs to to be confronted about that. And people shouldn't be too naive about her position. She's anti-war as hell compared to John Brennan. But that's not necessarily the correct measure. But anyway. Yeah, well, when the when the media attacks her for for being um, anti-war by calling her an Assad shill or a you know a Putin puppet, then you know she's she's somewhat over the target. You know that's because right. anti-war now is is uh, being anti-war is is akin to you know being a a, a Soviet Union spy these days. Right. You know what? So, it's so hollow though, and I think it was obvious even to the women who watched the View when Meghan McCain says when I think. Tulsi Gabbard, I think, Assad apologist. In other words, and this is what Tulsi Gabbard should have said, in other words, you can't form an accusation against me as a complete sentence at all. All you can do (laughs) is talk about your own stupid feelings. You got nothing on me because you know nothing. Let's talk about how your dad is friends with the Northern Storm Brigade that sold Stephen Sotloff to ISIS who cut his head off. Let's talk about that. Man, big, yeah, that disgusting pig. You know, something like that. <laughs> the Russia, the Russian agent thing keeps on coming up, and I think that that has a lot to do with neutralizing the anti-war movement. Because here we have Russia and the United States in all these proxy wars all over the world, and of course, if if you're against these wars happening, you're against U.S. foreign policy or even our, our money being spent on that, our tax money being spent on that, you get lumped in with, oh, you're on their side. But most of the people who watch the news don't even understand that what these things going on are proxy wars and that that is why there is this hostility between the two countries. They just think it has to do with the elections or dumb things like that or that Russia is such a dictatorship. That, that I think it's all centered around these wars and this foreign policy, and that is, is really what is responsible for the escalation of this propaganda against Russia. Absolutely. And look, um, I think everybody knows this. Everybody knows this. Well, they're too busy USA distracted and being is fighting. number one. Well, yeah. We are the world empire. The Soviet Union not only lost the Cold War, it ceased to exist. The Red Army dissolved. The Russian troops withdrew 2,000 miles to the east, back behind their old border. Um, America has a policy of full-spectrum dominance over the planet. We're the global policemen. Blah, 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 blah. We've all heard it. There's a million euphemisms for world empire, global hegemony, whatever you call it. No one ever accuses Russia of that. 
of that, except, you know, completely hyperventilating retards at the Washington Post or something. But there's no mistaking. No one goes around saying Russia is number one. America is the preeminent power on the face of the earth by far. And the only countries that are large enough to be really independent from American political dominance, uh, hardly from American influence, but from American dominance, essentially are Russia and China. Um, And I guess India as well, though I don't know if America has much interest in trying to subjugate India. We get along with them all right. They might be a big enough power that they can keep us out. The Iranians, of course. But, you know, Brazil, they were part of the BRICS there for a minute, and America helped see to the end of that, of course. Um, That wasn't too hard. Um, Other than that, there's no power on Earth that would dare even defy the United States of America. So that's the premise of the starting point of point one of the entire story of America and Russia post-Cold War. And, you know, I did an interview um, with a lady who asked me quite sincerely, which this is no knock at her. It's just this is the world that we're living in. And she said, well, what was the Cold War? Right. So, in other words, Americans and she was speaking for a lot of, you know, her fellow neighbors, too. They don't know anything about the turning point that World War Two was in history, especially in terms of American global posture, whatever you want to call it there. Or the, the next you know, major step there in the change with the fall of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, and the history of the U.S. and its power in the world as it's developed since then. No one's ever told these stories, right? They don't have a narrative for this, really. We have bits and pieces of it um, that, you know, again, America as the global policeman or something like that. But what does that really mean? And what it means is that America has incorporated almost the entire former Soviet alliance into America's NATO military alliance and marched it all the way up to Russia's doorstep. Um, Quite literally put troops in the Baltic states right on Russia's border in Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. So uh, if you're the Russians, this is everything. Imagine if the Russians sponsored a coup in, and I don't mean a made-up one like MSNBC and the Washington Post, but I mean, you know, in your imagination, a real thing, where they overthrew the government of Canada, and they used a bunch of Nazis to do it. And when the French Quebecers said, we refuse to recognize the new coup d'etat junta here, then the Russians started sponsoring a bunch of Nazi death squads to go and attack them and murder them and try to force them to submit to the new junta right on our northern border like that. Imagine the outrage in America. We'd nuke Moscow. That would be the war right there. That would be the nuclear war right there if they would even consider such a thing. And yet that's the exact history of what America has done in Ukraine. America overthrew the government of Ukraine twice in 10 years and continues to announce through the Bush, Obama, and now into the Trump administrations that they want eventually to bring Georgia and Ukraine into NATO. And this is essentially an existential threat to the Russians. Uh, What are they, like extras in our movie or something? And we're supposed to believe that they'll never react to this? When this is absolutely a red line to them. 
You know, in the 90s, Yeltsin was drunk and pathetic and essentially was subjugated by American power and had no choice but to acquiesce to what the Americans were doing. Putin's a stronger leader than that. And if you want to look at the very worst things that Russia has done, I'm happy to condemn them. Um, I don't really see much of a problem with their seizure of the Crimean Peninsula, which had always been Russian territory uh, up until the 50s. you know, for hundreds of years, dating back to when America was still under the Articles of Confederation. It was when Catherine the Great uh, bought it from the Ottoman Empire. Um, and it was all Russian-speaking, except the very small minority Tatar population, which, hey, it's unfair to them, I guess, the Turkic uh, peoples there, that they didn't have much of a say. But the other, like, 90% of the population of Crimea wanted to join Russia anyway. No one was killed. There was no invasion. They left their base and just essentially went and stood on street corners and said, this is our land again. Um, but then you could accuse them of sending their special forces to back the um, separatists in the eastern regions of Ukraine who refused to recognize the new coup d'etat junta. But what were they doing? They were helping these people defend themselves. They weren't launching an invasion, an attack against the West. They were essentially attempting to declare independence And I mean the people of eastern Ukraine, not the Russians on their behalf. Um, They were attempting to defy the rule of the new coup d'etat government that had overthrown their elected leader. And so then the new government that America backed, of course, it was America's coup. um, They immediately sent Nazi groups like right sector and the Azov battalion, along with their National Guard and within their National Guard, to attack and slaughter these people. Something like thirteen to 15,000 people have died in that war in the East. Um, yeah, man. So look, before we get... What's the Russian to help them defend themselves, essentially, is the worst you could say about it. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that's what... what you, I mean, before we get any more into the history of all that, I think that... But because you, what you said is that, you know, uh, no one knows this. Most people don't know the, the history behind everything. And, and that just... What that does is that highlights the importance of this... Of, of trying to blow some fire back into this anti-war movement, you know. We need to make anti-war, anti-war again. And whenever you were talking about Tulsi Gabbard and how, like, if, if they, they strike that right note and piss off a group of veterans by attacking a veteran or, or like, an, an active duty or a reservist who's, who's served two tours in Iraq, then that's the, that could be the, you know, that could be the new fire. That could be the impetus behind blowing this wind back into the anti-war movement. So yeah, like that, how, I mean, how do, how do we go about doing this, man? How do we make anti-war cool again? How do we get it back into the mainstream talking point? And then instead of, you know, instead of this perpetual war that the U S how do we get people challenging that is, do, do we have to, do we have to play the status game? We have to support Tulsi Gabbard or do we have to, how, how, how do we go about doing this? Well, I wouldn't recommend against it. I mean, um, any real libertarian, of course, is going to find a million things to disagree with her about. But it's a question of priorities. Um, right. I, you know, I can't the, stand her on the economics. The libertarian you know? oracle Murray Rothbard certainly participated in politics and urged people to do so as well um, toward libertarian ends. If you think that you can move the needle there on the margin and make a difference, by all means, do you know whatever you can. My idea essentially, and I picked this up from driving a cab for many years, was that, um, you know, libertarians, a good libertarian is better than the left on the things that the left are good on and better than the right on the things that the right are good on. You could even say we're more left wing and more right wing 
than the left wing and the right wing on the stuff that we should be in agreement with them about. So, for example, taxation. Take any right winger. We're even better than any right winger on opposing taxes. Or take money. We're better than the most right wing gold bug you got. The Austrian libertarian is even more gold buggy than that, man, to the nth degree. We got all that covered. The pure, um, you know, property rights, free market capitalist ethic to the nth degree that makes conservatives look like a bunch of socialists compared to us in a manner of speaking. You see what I mean? And then, of course, the same thing with the left, that criminal justice and all these kinds of things. Man, we want to repeal every law that's been passed for the last hundred years. How's that for letting people out of prison? How, you know, uh, get started on, um, you know, abolishing police forces around the country uh, that, that treat people, particularly, you know, left constituencies uh, like men without rights, uh, men and women. Um, and, and all these kinds of things. So that means then if when we're trying to convert people to libertarianism or if we're just trying to convert liberals or conservatives, leftists or rightists to our set of – our agenda, our set of priorities, then we should meet them where they're at and be even better than them in the ways that they're good. No right-winger wants to hear some left-winger complain about when you're wrong, it's more like this. And no left-winger is going to be convinced by anything a right-winger is going to say either, not most of the time, right? So meet them where they're at and then be even better than them. Attack the left from the left and the right from the right. So what I'm doing right now, I have a great uh, co-author named Robert Gaines who's an Afghan war vet. And we've written three pieces for Breitbart, and we're trying to get the fourth one published there. And – uh, because, you know, the Breitbart right wing, they're sick of this stuff. They don't believe it anymore. And, you know, they have some pretty crass attitudes against the people of the Muslim world, maybe. But mostly what it amounts to is just leave them the hell alone because there ain't no good that comes with messing with them. So uh, so just stop. So, um you know, for the stuff that we're writing, you know, we're trying to help chime in on and rhyme with and, 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 uh, you know, commiserate with and, and help to promote that sort of anti interventionist sentiment among the right. I happen to think that that's where it really counts right now. You know, the American people essentially assume, whether it's true or not, that liberals and leftists are good on war i mean leftists essentially are leftists are you know real socialists or marxists of any kind are anti-imperialist um other than maybe some trotskyites but even them no i mean the trotskyites at the world socialist website they're totally anti-war so i don't even know who any real leftist is anti-imperialist and essentially you can count them in anyway um and then they they need to play their role of course in absolute holding the blowtorch to the feet of the liberals and the Democrats, but even then, attacking the right from the right and helping and trying and focusing on convincing the right wing to be anti-war helps them with the Democrats too. Because what a great talking point for a leftist to scream in the face of a liberal that I absolutely forbid you from being worse than any right winger on this issue. So if you, you have you know real right wing peaceniks setting that example – then you have a great cudgel for leftists to use to force liberals to get in line. And at the same time, I look at the reality, man. 
George Bush wasn't Ronald Reagan's son. He was George Bush's son. And he's completely worthless and stupid and cruel and wrong. And everybody agrees with that now. All of Washington, D.C. will tell you now, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have gone along with that. And all of talk radio land will agree with that, too. And, you know, they're hawkish on some things. But essentially, if they could take all that back and have much less of a terror war this whole time, maybe have their little brother back or home from the hospital, um, they'd take it now. So we ought to be meeting them right where they're at. Again, my co-author here, Robert Gaines, he's an Afghan war vet. He was an Air Force liaison to the Army on the ground calling in airstrikes. In other words, you know, fighting in the blood and guts with the infantry on the ground against the Taliban insurgents there. And his idea is that he shouldn't have had to do that. And no other Air Force liaison to the Army ought to have to do it after him either. Do you if think this that thing there could be a, uh, should have never happen and we should call this thing off now and he's speaking for a lot of other veterans like him. So at this late date, who could argue, right? That it should take 20 years to kill 400 terrorists or 18. Something is wrong, <laughs> everybody knows it. That's why Donald Trump stomped Jeb Bush into the ground in the primaries in 2016. And we ought to be running with that. That's the, the check we ought to be cashing. We need to be rounding up right-wing ministers, football coaches, and country music stars, and combat veterans, right-wingers, and libertarians, and putting them out front. Well, unfortunately, that's not going to happen this election cycle, at least with the president. You know, They're not going to challenge the, the right-wing. But do you well, think but you know what the way we're framing all these arguments in Breitbart is that we support Trump's effort to do the following because he actually has made some efforts to make peace in Afghanistan and get us out of there that are worth supporting. Right. And right. the same thing with Syria. I mean, don't forget they they've made him back down a little bit now, but just a few months ago, the Secretary of Defense resigned over his inability to prevent Trump from announcing that we're getting the hell out of there. I don't even want to be there anyway. And ISIS is dead. The local generals told me that ISIS is good as dead. So let's end this thing. That's how he feels about it. That is a gigantic point to take and run with for all Trump supporters that Donald Trump, the Republican Party leader, the president of the United States, the Republican president of the United States is saying this is stupid and wrong and it's time to call it off. And we support him on that. And that is good shtick. Yeah, you I know? agree. Do you think – you know how when, when Ron Paul ran both 2007 and uh, 2011 uh, or started campaigning rather in those, in those years, there was a, a – a wildfire behind him, you know, he, he, there was a, a, it's like even a, it's called the Ron Paul effect, you know, where it converted millions of Americans into libertarians and to anti-war. Do you think that there's a chance that Tulsi Gabbard might have that effect on the left? Or do you think that that's I hope a, so. yeah, me too. Listen, man. I'm, I'm very excited about her presence in these primaries. You know, um, the fact of the matter is that all of her opponents think that foreign policy is her weakness. Oh, yeah, I saw on TV I'm supposed to accuse her of liking Assad so much. So if she takes the correct attitude that, as George Bush would say, bring them on, 
And she just, you know, treats each of these attacks as an opportunity to completely demolish her opponents and then, you know, stand victoriously on their bloody bodies at the end. Uh, She can just do great with this. Like I say, she knows what she's talking about. All they know is what they saw on TV. They don't know anything, you know, for her. I mean, the simple fact of the matter is right, essentially, is that. The American foreign policy establishment, you can include Israel and, you know, you're telling of this story or exclude them depending on how much time you have and I guess your audience. But the American foreign policy establishment, with or without Israeli influence, they are obsessed with Iran. And they're really mad that they have fought all of Iraq War II for Iran and gave them Baghdad, got rid of Saddam for them, and put their friends in the Dawah Party and Supreme Islamic Council in power in Iraq War II. And so now they're mad as hell that they did that for the Ayatollah, and so they keep trying to cancel that out by coming up with these cockamamie schemes like let's back al-Qaeda in Syria to weaken Iran's other friend, Assad, which of course only backfired and only made Iran even more powerful and more influential in Syria than ever before. You know, there are ways, I think, to bring this stuff up and just reduce it down very simply to, look here, everybody, don't be confused, okay? Al-Qaeda attacked the United States. Bashar al-Assad did not. So who's the enemy of the United States? Al-Qaeda, not Assad. Everybody with me so far? Okay. That's why Wolf Blitzer asking this question is a ridiculous clown. Ask John Kerry. Ask George Bush. Ask Bill Clinton and George Bush why they were sending jihadis to Assad to be tortured. Ask John Kerry why he was sitting down having dinner with Bashar al-Assad just seven years ago in his three-piece suit with his clean-shaven chin. It's because, yeah, he's a dictator, but he's a secularist. Should America support him? No. Should we support al-Qaeda's suicide bombers against him like my accuser here wants? No. And then let them chew on that. Let them sit there and sputter about moderates and moderates. Oh, no. we Yes, we wanted to fight ISIS and al-Qaeda's enemy Assad, but we only wanted the moderates to win, not them. Let's see how far they get with that. When she can invoke all of her fellow veterans from Iraq War II, there's another one, me and my Iraq, I'm quoting, a, paraphrasing a possible future her here, not speaking for myself, of course, me and my friends, you know, out there in the sand in the Anbar province fighting against the Sunni-based insurgency allied with al-Qaeda, and now that's who you people want us to support? That's disrespect to all the 4,000 Americans who died fighting the Sunni-based insurgency in Iraq, blah, blah, blah. She can, in other words pummel the hell out of them because she's right and they're wrong about all that right like i said she's bad on drone wars against aq and all that but wars for them shit she's gonna destroy her opposition on that stuff because they no one ever explained it to them like that okay remember the al-qaeda guys knocked down the towers and all that well forget that it's iran and hezbollah that we hate okay no one ever says it like that they just try to conflate it all together Right, but it's not together. These are opposite sides of a war here. Right. I mean, which side is America on? The TV, brown people bad. All brown, you know. That's essentially the the American talking point on the Middle Eastern conflicts that the the, the U.S. keeps stoking. Yeah, and, but and, but again, that's fine when they're just versus each other up there. But when they, tr- it's just like when they try to take on 
Ron Paul. And they go, oh, you say they hate us because of things that we did. And then Ron goes, yeah, see, we were bombing Iraq from Saudi Arabia for 10 years before we got attacked by these Saudis in revenge for that. The CIA calls it blowback. How do you like me now? And the whole crowd goes crazy. And they hated it, but we didn't. The whole Americans went, wow, look, that old man respects me enough to tell me the truth. I seem to remember America bombing Iraq for 10 years straight before they hit New York. Huh. That is, he does have a point there, kind of, don't he? After all this time of the media telling me that I was crazy for remembering that the 1990s happened. I like this and strategy, so, man. I like it. Because uh, they knew the, it was true. The... Uh... We could. That, that's how we make anti-war, anti-war again. I, I like the fact that you're going through and um, and and interjecting this this narrative into the Breitbart crowd, which is I'm, I'm frankly I'm blown away that that's actually happening. And uh, you know, I think that the the support of Tulsi Gabbard. I think if if you could get uh, Tulsi Gabbard support in the Breitbart crowd because of her anti-war stance, that would be that would be incredible, man. I well, mean, I, I mean, I think there is a bit of that. Yeah, Um, because of priorities, people are really sick and tired of this stuff. And, you know, then, of course, the liberals want to try to use that against her. But again, you know, she's bright enough, I think, to say, how can you be worse than these right wingers on this issue and just turn it right around on them? Right. She's better than her opponents on all this stuff. It's not like she has to come come up with a clever excuse for how bad she is. Right. All she has to do is expose the weakness of their argument. So I think that I think she's in a really strong position, you know. And then again, I had a lot of high hopes for Rand Paul. Ah, I share that sentiment. He was utterly disappointing. <laughs> he still he still plays out his. Uh, I mean, still does some of it, you know. Still still does stand against uh, lots of lots of the wars that we're in. But he's just not as active as I thought he would be, like his dad, you know. Uh, yeah, he does. Look, I should say he's probably the best senator we've ever had. He just falls so far short of his potential that it's completely ridiculous and tragic. But yeah, then again, he's still there. Um, and well, and so his future potential is still virtually limitless uh, if, if he's willing to take the right stand. I mean, I'll give you the perfect example where, you know, Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee led on Yemen. And he ended up supporting it and voting for the resolution, but he didn't do anything to put his name on it, to push it forward or anything. He ended up having this kind of excuse that, well, I was worried about the part that said this doesn't affect the old AUMF war against al-Qaeda. This is just the war for al-Qaeda in, against the Houthis that we're talking about here. And he didn't want that to be like a backdoor authorization for the war against AQAP. I mean, I kind of appreciate that because it could be cited later as sort of a supplementary um, authorization, even though that should be BS. I'm told that that is a real possibility. And yet, look what happened. He was able to issue an amendment that took care of that and got rid of that part and didn't say any of that. So it's clear that it's about the Houthis and not the war against AQAP, but it doesn't specifically exempt the AQAP war in any way either. So he was able to correct it and then vote for it, but that just goes to show then that he could have been the champion of it the whole time. And then again, you think of how powerful that narrative is, that look, I'm Rand Paul, and so that means that I am the exact opposite of Bernie Sanders on 
every public policy issue. You name it, except this, because this is so important. I don't give a damn about politics. This is the most cruel thing that America's done since the last one, and we've got to stop right now, etc. He could have been great. He could have set an example for what a great man he is, that he would put this as his highest priority to do anything that he could. And then, but so he voted for it, but it's like, eh, you know, why not go ahead and lead on it? You know, and then he puts out a, a, a thing about Afghanistan and wrote an essay about it, but then that was all we heard about it. Like, man, we need a full court push on that. We need a real push on that. So it's like, you know what I mean? And there's a million of them like that. And he used to be worse. I think he's getting better, but yeah. I'm sorry. I'm and sorry. I shouldn't go on a Rand Paul tangent. This could take all day. <laughs> well, no, that's it's good, man. I mean, that, that, we need to use all uh, all available options on the table, man. This is war we're talking about. This is not this is not some social justice, you know, first world problems like John Vibes likes to say. This is this is the lives of millions of people at stake here and I think that this is like this is the the fight of our time. We're we're we're, we're approaching a time in which war is normalized. Like people are asking, like World War Three might kick off. We're in fucking World War Three. You know, there's wars in, in in multiple different countries that the U.S. is battling, and and stoking and and creating and and it's becoming normal. This is uh this is a dangerous precedent being set, and we need to fight this. And I think this is a good time to wrap it up right here. You know, uh, I I I was kind of uh, scared about um talking about potential solutions and how to make anti-war anti-war again. Cause I didn't know if we were going to be able to hammer them out, man, but you got some, you got, it seems like you're, you're fighting a good fight, uh, where you're at Scott. And, uh, I mean, we're doing the same, you know, even though we don't reach very many people, uh, anymore with, uh, with our anti-war articles and stuff like that, we're still putting them out and, uh, we're going to continue to do that. And maybe now we can, you know, that there's a presidential candidate who is, is openly anti-war, Perhaps that that's you know this is a time to strike and maybe in the next year when all these campaigns start maybe that's a it'll be a great time to start injecting this you know as long as they're mm-hmm. not raiding our houses you know in black suits and taking us out but um, you know hopefully that's not we're not to that point yet that only that's that's just happening in the UK we don't have to worry about that yet but uh, well you guys make great points about the algorithm. Um, you know, as the new computer god that rules all of our lives and decides what we're allowed to know and see. But I think, you know, the resentment built in there uh, when you talk about that, uh, certainly I feel the same way. I think a lot of people do. I think all that spells the death knell of Facebook and that at some point, you know, I hope it's not a new website. It should be a standalone app that we can all use where there's no algorithm except the one you choose. And uh, we, you know, refuse to put, I mean, this is the internet we're talking about. How can we put ourselves at the mercy of these guys? And here I am in media. I've abandoned Facebook and Twitter, never was on Instagram and whatever. I know I need these things to get, you know, the, the shows I produce and whatever out. But I just can't stand to be stuck in their walled garden and the victim of their, you know, algorithms and censorship and all these things um, like you talk about. But I ain't the only one. And I think that there's a big change coming there because essentially there are too many crazy ass computer nerds who aren't going to put up with this, right? Like somebody out there is there uh, a hundred of these guys who are level 50 computer geniuses. It's already who are just as man. mad about it as we are. Who we are had they're the, going to fix the, the creator. Us, man. The market will provide gentlemen. It already is. We had the creator of minds.com bill Ottman on, on the podcast, uh, 
a few episodes ago, and and that's that's one of these these outlets. You know, this is an outlet that rewards users. It's just like Facebook, but it, except that it doesn't use an algorithm. It uses chronological time, and you get to look at your at your newsfeed just like that, and it rewards users with cryptocurrencies. It's completely secure, and 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 you can be anonymous on it, and it's not censored at all. And that's the, that's the, the market is providing, and we just have to keep pushing this this topic into the forefront and keep uh, you know keep fighting this the establishment. I mean, that's the only way we win in this what is really actually an info war. I mean, Alex Jones was so ahead of his time when he said that, but I mean, this is we are truly in an, an info war, and that this is the way we win. You know, so man, Scott, uh, how about you give out your website, man, and we'll uh, and and where people could find you and find your book and everything, and and then we'll wrap it up, man. Okay, sure. So I'm at antiwar.com. I'm the editor there, so those are the viewpoints I want you to read, essentially. ScottHorton.org is my show. I got 4,940-something, I guess, interviews going back to 2003 there for you. Uh, LibertarianInstitute.org, I've got a bunch of great libertarian writers written for me there, and of course, especially featuring the great Sheldon Richmond. And then uh, the book is Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and it's available in audiobook as well. And you can find out all about that at foolserrand.us. And of course, it's on Amazon and all that. Right on, man. Well, uh, man, I, I really uh, appreciate your insight into that, dude. I was excited when Vibes and I were talking about doing this podcast and picking your brain about um, about how we can make the anti-war movement uh, have new fire, man. I think that, that we definitely touched on some good points there, dude. I, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, man. Cool. Very much uh, appreciate you guys having me on here. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon, Scott. Right on. Take care. Take it easy. All right, everybody, and we'll catch you next week. Peace.